Well, yeah. it's it sounds like you know how like whiskey and wine drinkers always get made fun of for like being like yes I have yes I get caramel and shoe leather and whiskey whiskey the singer's getting sore we raise the roof now when we're lower in the floor the band is blistered but we got a little more when I say one, two, welcome to the whiskey topic the weekly podcast that tends to get off topic. My name is Mark Bylock. I'm the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. You can also find our podcast on the website whiskey.buzz. Welcome to episode 64 of The Whiskey Topic. Today we're going to be talking about... Sour mash. Sour mash. Specifically. So only, I believe George Dickel is the only sour mash. Uh, yeah, no, that's the, that, only, that's one. the only one. That's the only, the one, only that one that uses that, <laughs> like that process. Absolutely. Uh, so that's the only one on the bottle. Um, anyway, that's all we have to say about sour mash. Um, yep. So this is over. Thanks for, um, thanks for listening. Uh, no, but before we begin, we do have um, Gary Gilman here. We'll introduce him in a second. Uh, we're going to talk all about sour mash. And... Um, a very misunderstood um, process, process yeah. mostly because whiskey makers sometimes say it's a sour mash and sometimes right. don't. Yes. Uh, and we're going to get into we're going to get deep into the bottom of that, including uh, going through history, the eighteen hundreds, cowboys, some uh, science, some it's gonna science. Be cool. It's going to be great. Uh, but first, I uh, love to give a shout out to Adam Gemmel. Hey, Adam. Why did you listen to us for so many hours? Against all, at all once? recommendations. Just Poor guy. Never do. It. I just. Like, Adam, I'm so sorry I had to listen to our voices for so long. I mean, he won't get to this episode for another week, I think, so. He's probably like, I'm done now. I'm I can't done. listen. I don't want to hear those two voices ever again. Could you imagine if we stopped at episode 63 and then at 64? <gasps> we just and we gave him a shout out and everything? <sighs> that's no, terrible. that's terrible. not going to happen. Adam's <laughs> the best. And thank you. And thanks for all your tweets and questions and keep them coming. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Straight Muddled also sent us a nice photo of him drinking whiskey and listening to the podcast. Nice. So love hearing that. Yes, thank you. And as always, we're doing an in-person interview. In-person, so, so the dogs, dogs are excited because they love me. They pitter-patter. Uh, they do pitter-pat. when I Yeah, when there's people in the house, they get really excited, which is fun. Uh, it is. So as mentioned, uh, we have uh, Gary Gilman here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yay, thank um, you. You're a professional lawyer. We have a yes. common theme with lawyers coming on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, probably because a little bit of money goes a long way when it comes to whiskey hobby, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but you've been devoted to beer and bourbon for decades. Yes. Uh, you have the blog that you posted daily at uh, beer at, so it's B-E-E-R-E-T-S-E-Q.com. Yeah. I can read well. Um, and also you participate in some bourbon boards, including straightbourbon.com and bourbonenthusiast.com. You've yes. basically been bourbon obsessed for a very long time. Yes, bourbon and, and beer too. Yeah. And beer too, absolutely. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Thank you both. Welcome. Great, Thanks great for coming on. So I've been wanting to talk about Sour Mash for a little while. I think we've mentioned it a few times in the podcast, but I do think it's a little, uh, little like we said, a little misunderstood. It actually appears on most like bourbon bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, when people find their bourbon, they're like, oh, no, I drink the Sour Mash one. I don't drink the other ones. But actually, it's a process that's used uh, pretty uh, across the board. Um uh, so, but first, I'm curious because Gary, you've been doing this for a long time. What got you into it in the first place? Oh well, I initially, I guess you know, when I was younger, uh, um, actually, when I lived in Montreal, where I'm from originally, um, I don't know. I just took an, an interest in different brands of beer initially, and mm. you know, most people just learn to drink it or or not drink it, uh, as is their want. Some people enjoy a glass of wine. Some people drink uh, no alcohol, which is fine. But I. 
I, I, I enjoyed the taste of beer, and we used to travel to Plattsburgh, New York, which is about 60 miles from Montreal on weekends before I was married. And um, I noticed that there were different brands than we had in Canada. Mm. You know, some people would have noticed that, and that's the end of it. Just have a drink, come home. Um, but I, why are the brands different? Like, why do they taste somewhat different? Mm -hmm. So I bought a book or two. This was before the internet era. And I, I just found the historical part of it fascinating and, and, you know, and the technological part. So I learned through, educated myself about a beer initially and whiskey about 10 years later because I could see the connections in fermentation, mashing and fermentation and grains and cereals. So I think there's a natural connection between the two as there is between wine and brandy. And um, I underwent a similar process of education with spirits, but particularly bourbon and Canadian whiskey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any, like single malts ever? Yes. Yes. Single malts as well. Yes. Yes, until they became so costly. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, well, it's funny. Some people, you know, gravitate like towards yeah. one or the other. And, and we do have a lot of um, guests from the, the U.S. on here. And they're big bourbon drinkers. And they're just not interested in single malt. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I am very much. And, of course, Irish whiskey. And the reason is that all these drinks are related. They're really just all members of the same family. And there's, you know, some people say, you know, I don't like scotch whiskey or malt whiskey. I love bourbon. I love you know, Japanese whiskey, I can't drink Canadian. I, to me, you can't look at it that way because they're all, they're all connected historically and, and technically. So to me, it's, it's all one and they're all interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. For sure. So, uh, so yeah, you, um, and you've done a fair bit of research on the sour mash uh, yeah. process. Um, and it led you back down a long historical route. Uh, tell us, tell us how, like, where did it start? Well, you know, when I first went to Kentucky um, in 2002 was my first trip mm -hmm. and uh, toured many distilleries and uh, was active in straightbourbon.com um, from that period, from that year until today. Of course, I learned about sour mash, as anybody does who, who uh, quickly learns about bourbon. Um, and I learned, you know, the current meaning of it. Um, it's, it's, it's not necessarily, a, I think, a simple concept to get. But it's actually way more complicated than, than I felt, you know, I understood until recently. Um, the explanation, if I can just try to state it briefly, of how what it means today is that the part of the still that has the spent beer, as it's called, right, from mm -hmm. which the alcohol has been vaporized, mm -hmm. it's water and actually a little bit of alcohol, some starches, and lactic acid. So it's quite, it is sour. Mm -hmm. um, at some point in, in, in uh, whiskey history, they realized they could use that to mash grains for the next batch, so to speak. Uh, instead of using water, which is the, the thing you would normally moisten the ground grain with, right, to make a, a whiskey batch, they would use spent beer, as it's called, mm -hmm. uh, or spent beer and water, which is what they do today. They mix them. And the reason for that is that uh, that spent beer is naturally acidic, so it makes for an acidic mash, and the acid in the mash helps to ensure a better fermentation. It allows the yeast to, when it's later added, to work in a more predictable and correct manner, mm -hmm. and it keeps out wild bacteria and, the, and bad yeast. Um, that's why you acidify a, a whiskey mash with backset or spent beer. There's many terms for it. Now, you can also add a lactic acid um, culture. 
and some distillers do that um, because sometimes they're concerned that backset might have you know thingies in it that they're not sure you know should be in their next whiskey mash but and and that is the reason today that um, sour mashing is done and all bourbon distilleries sour mash almost all bourbon is as you were humorously indicating before, really, it does use that process. There has been the odd whiskey or two made without sour mashing, mm -hmm. experimentally, uh, one, one or two bourbons as well in recent years. But um, all bourbon distillers do that, and my understanding is quite a number of Canadian ones do too. Yeah. And so um, if we take it a step back, uh, fermentation is really where we make alcohol, right? We uh, use yeast, we convert the sugars to alcohol and gas, and uh, we have ourselves uh, alcohol, a beer, um, and this this beginning process has a really big effect on how that whiskey ends ends up. So the flavors that come through that uh, process there does, as you say, what's the differences between one distillery and another? The fermentation is definitely a big part of that uh, process. Not only the recipe, because we've talked about you know corn or rye or wheat or or what have you or malted barley, but also the way it's been fermented. Absolutely, and and. Um those distilleries that still use a jug yeast, the mm -hmm. yeast cultured to their specification that they keep going in mm -hmm. a jug and then it's cultured up into a, a much larger amount that can be put into a mash, are very jealous of the um, characteristics of their yeast because it has marked the different flavor impacts that you mentioned. The different yeasts have different flavor impacts. So the that's right. And but in terms of, of mashing itself, um, and this is common to, to beer as well, uh, your ground cereal grains, which are mostly raw, in, 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 unlike in, in beer making, right? They're, they're not malted grains. Mm -hmm. raw, your corn, your rye are ground, mixed with water or spent beer, which is heated. The reason for that is to hy hydro hy it's hydrolysis. It's in order to soften the... the um, the shell of, of the grain and allow the water to penetrate so that the starches can be available ultimately to be converted into fermentable sugars. So, right, it's mm -hmm. solubilization and a uh, softening process. And then once that occurs, um, you're able to, um, you're able to, to uh, convert those uh, starches to fermentable sugars with malt. So there's always some malt added to a whiskey mash, usually malted barley today. They used to use malted corn uh, in Kentucky in the very early years. Um, and then once you have that soupy, porridgey um, uh, mass of, of um, uh, sugary grains, your yeast is added, and the yeast feeds on the sugar, right? And the byproducts of, of replicating itself by eating the sugar are carbon dioxide and alcohol, other uh, constituents as well, secondary constituents they're called, congeners, fusel oils, are chemical byproducts of, of that feeding process, the yeast eating the sugars. So once you have your beer, which results from that, your alcoholic beer, uh, which has many analogies to beverage beer at that point, except it's not boiled with hops like beverage beer is, you put it in a still, right, to, and it's boiled, to fractionate off the ethanol component. Um, but no matter how, un unless you make pure ethanol, pure neutral spirits, if you're making a traditional spirit, um, some water, of course, always comes over with the alcohol. And some of those secondary constituents that mm -hmm. we spoke about come over as well, which 
help to flavor the, the, um, the, the spirit ultimately uh, after it's aged. And, and, and that makes whiskey. And, and brandy is the same, except you don't have to mash. You don't have the preliminary, preliminary, preliminary step of converting a starch to fermentable sugar. You already have your sugar. Same thing with molasses for rum. Right. And, and that, that's right. So those are the basic steps. And all yeasts that are added today at that feeding stage to the fermenting tub are yeasts that the distillers ex- know exactly what, the, what the, the characteristics are. So they know what the, the flavor profile of, is going to be of their white dog spirit that's going to come out of the process. What I've found in my research on, so, okay. Knowing though, so that, that's where we're at today. And that's what, what sour mashing means today, as I said before, is using a, a percentage of the spent beer from the still to mash your, your next batch. But it always bothered me in the 2000s, in the back of my mind, I always felt sour mash had to mean more than that. Right. Because of sourdough cultures. Because, you know, in reading certain things, you know, you would see some kind of very short, loose reference to um, the batch before, yeah, and it continues the batch after, you know, and leaven is a bit like that with bread. And I, I never felt that we really got to the bottom of what sour mashing uh, means. So laterally, I had the chance to, to, to research it, and in, in pursuing that, um, I feel I, I have, you know, found sources that indicate very clearly what it was, and it was a broader concept than it is today. Okay. Um, I'm just, we're just going to take, uh, before we get to that, um, uh, I guess the important parts, because we, we said a lot of things, so uh, uh, in fermentation, uh, yeast eats sugar, essentially, um, which is why with wine, if you want, you're making, uh, if you're making wine, you just add yeast, and then grapes are already full of sugar. Uh, with grain, you generally have starch, and the seed naturally converts the starch to sugar, and that's what is used when when uh, wheat grows and other things when they grow. I'm so technical. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm reading Proof again. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is basically, yeah, read, just read the book Proof. Um, you but, do read the book Proof, actually. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, but as far as, um, but so that really helps. So malted barley is help, uh, is helpful in the process because it's already gone through some of that process. And uh, when you malt barley, you're basically take, taking the starches and converting to sugars. And so you already have some sugars and some enzymes to get the process working. It goes through a lot faster. Exactly. Um, whereas with the corn, uh, not being malted in a typical case, you have to, those, those flavors have to really be pulled out of there. It's, it's a more complicated of a process. Um, also, there's malted rye, uh, which, uh, you know, if you, you distill You can malt corn. And you can malt corn. Um, any grain. Any grain. Any, yeah. But it's, it's, and I remember, sorry for interrupting, but I remember I, I read the, the, the piece in, in the article where you said they, they stopped doing it because it was, the flavor was so unpleasant. Right. Malting corn. But malted rye. Actually, has a pretty cool flavor. I've had a, I've had a couple of different uh, malted rye components, and they're it's a more interesting flavor. So, huh. you get different flavors from these products. Um, and in Canadian whis- whiskey, Absolutely. we typically um, we typically malt, ferment, and distill rye individually, and that gives you a whole other flavor. So, I'm just kind of ra- raising this as an example of all how all these different parts of the process affect the flavor of, of the uh, of the final whiskey. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Canadian whiskey, what's right in front of you, Mark? Oh yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We are. We'll, we'll take a break to talk about uh, Weiser's uh, The Last Barrels um, series. Gary's very kind to bring it to, uh, over yes, here. Thank you. Um, 
this is a really interesting Canadian product. It's only available in Ontario right now, and possibly that will be the only place it's available. Um, this would be one of those I would put on the list of probably get it as a collector's item. Uh, it's a 14-year-old batch. If you want to keep it closed. Yes. I'm so bad at that. I'm just, just I buy a couple. I, just, I guess. It's basically, uh, Gary, you know a lot about this. It's, <laughs> I do. It's basically uh, Canadian-style bourbon. My understanding uh, is that um, it was distilled at a low proof, just under 160 proof. I'm using really an American expression there. I do it all the time. But we do it all the time increasingly, don't we, in our whiskey chats in mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. um, but it was distilled under that, which is the, the um, within the limit to distill uh, U.S. bourbon whiskey, um, aged uh, for 14 years in uh, reused cooperage, so not new barrel cooperage. That's one difference. For mm -hmm. And um, uh, it has a corn, rye, barley malt component. Um, the barley malt, for, so the enzyme to convert the, as you said, Mark, the starches in the, uh, in all those cereals to, to fermentable sugar. Um, I can't recall the exact percentage that was mentioned uh, in the source I saw, but it, it's a fairly high corn content, very bourbon-like, so that it, it should taste. Oh, and and the sour mashing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, now. Where I, Davin de Cargamo, Ker the mm -hmm. well-known Canadian whiskey writer, I believe I saw this on his um, um, summary of, of this product's um, uh, characteristics. I believe he recounted that um, it was soured uh, by adding a, a lactic culture, uh, that the, the distillery added a lactic culture. So they didn't use backset, I believe, or if they did, I, I didn't get that from the account. Um, I believe I read that that um, a small container of sour milk was, well, I believe that's what Davin wrote, um, that he was told that, was added to the, you know, to the mash to sour it, which makes perfect sense because that's mostly lactic acid mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. the, in that yeah. product. So if you're going to sour it, um, that's as good a way as any. Mm -hmm. And um, mm. so that's how apparently they did, if, um, if I read that account right. And um, so, it has all the characteristics except for aging in, in new charred wood. It's aged in reused charred barrels that a bourbon would have. But because it was aged for 14 years instead of six or seven or eight for a bourbon, I feel it kind of ends up at the same mm -hmm. yeah. position. Yeah, right? it's not as thick on the mouthfeel, but flavor-wise, it's, yeah. it's definitely more oak spice than that kind of caramel okay. sweetness. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. uh, very, very pleasant. I'm really... I really like this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. enjoy it, too. Interesting that um, if, as some people say, the, the red layer, you know, behind the mm -hmm. char, mm -hmm. uh, the thin char layer in the barrel, if it gives its all to bourbon in the first five, six, seven years, it kind of makes sense that this product wouldn't have that that thick richness yeah. because sure. the reused barrel doesn't have that. You know, on the other hand, it it's still charred, right? It still has mm -hmm. to have something of yeah. the... It's still giving a lot of flavor. It's still giving a lot of flavor sure. and some wood sweetness. So, um, I don't know, Mark. It, and, uh, I like this one. Jamie, like like if, if, if it was in a blind tasting of bourbons 12 to 15 years old, do you think people would know that it's not a bourbon? I don't know. I don't think they would. I don't know. I don't, I don't think... See, this one is interesting. To me, it's interesting because it doesn't have rye spice. It has more oak spice. Right. 
but you, with the I amount of spice, I do find it to be a bit dry. Yes, it's also very dry. Yeah. That's a great, great point. So I don't know where you'd guess it. I guess you would guess it on the younger side because it's not oak forward. Right. But that spice would hit you, and you would think it's a high rye bourbon, maybe. Yeah, maybe. maybe. It would be really interesting. We should put that one aside yeah. and see it at our next tasting. Yeah. How people react. See how people react. Yeah, for sure. I think but that's it, on the list. It's on the list. <laughs> I'll write it down. So definitely I definitely a high quality product. Anyway, you yeah, like. it's. It's great stuff. And it's this really, is basically, really um, and again, this could be last barrels is so frequently used in marketing team and touring teams mm -hmm. for any whiskey. Um, but the story is they they used this experiment. They had a bunch of barrels. They are, are they might be aging barrels now in this style, but at least this is a unique product that they don't have any more fourteen year old barrels of this type with this history at uh, aging currently at J.P. Weiser's from at least long ago. We don't right. know if they're developing new products in this area. Right, right. and that, that's my understanding. And, and I think I understand as well, too, that had it not been released on its own, as we see it in the bottle now, it would have been used in blending. Right. Yeah, that's For a great sure. point. And that's uh, very common point. in Canada. Yep. And, and it's the same with the U.S. Yep. as well. They would just blend it with other things, and it would add a flavor component as opposed to together. Precisely. Yeah. That's cool. great. Awesome. All right. I do like it a lot. Can it's, I have it, some more? Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's for. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. All right. Where were we on Sour Mash? Uh, yeah, Jamie, take us back. Yeah. Yeah, because okay. uh, going through, um, actually, I also want you to touch a little bit on the the, the Lincoln County uh, thing that Rose you posted. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing. But I know we're talking about Sour Mash okay, today. Well, so, we'll get to that. But, I, but even just to touch on it a little bit. Um, but yeah, take us back to the history of Sour Mash. How it is okay. different uh, so, than today. So uh, in, in Kentucky, from the inception of, of uh, whiskey distilling, uh, which originated around the 1760s, 1770s, before America became, uh, before the revolution, um, it, it, even then it was known that there were two forms of mashing, sweet mash and sour mash. And this has been documented. Um, there's a number of sources that show that these two methods were known then. One of them is, is in uh, a gentleman's book called, his name is uh, Crowdgy, his second name, and he's one of the early bourbon writers. And he recounts a sweet mash recipe from 1822, I believe it is. And it's written in a way that you can see that it turns also into a sour mash recipe. And uh, there's other sources as well that have been identified that, so the, you know, that show that these uh, terms were used as to how to make a, a Kentucky whiskey mash. Um, so what did they mean? Let me, can I say first that, I want to, may I read something first? Please. Okay, which to introduce yes. this. Um, Tom Gilmore was the editor of Bonfort's Wine and Spirit Bulletin, uh, which was the, the leading trade magazine in America for the whiskey industry. Uh, whiskey, and what they covered wine too. And Tom Gilmore lived from 1860, and he died not long after Prohibition. So this would be a version of a blog back in the 1800s. Is <laughs> That's right. We're going. We have to go yeah, back. Yeah. So this we is a blog. To, this is not a Twitter account. It's a blog. <laughs> no, no, no. This is. Um, I believe I quoted this in my blog. I certainly mentioned Gilmore. Um, and he, he was quoted in a book from 1901 by Edgar Preyer, P-R-E-Y-E-R, -E -E that, uh, that I found, uh, called Information and Guide for the Liquor Business, okay, written kind of at the height of the, of the, 
the whiskey business in America as it was before Prohibition, because after that, Prohibition kind of, you know, had cast its shadow and whiskey was being shut down and finally eliminated in 1920. So the Chuck Cowdery of, uh, of the 1800s. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it relatable. Right. This, is, this is Chuck oh in 1800s. That's, that's, okay. You're so funny. So here's Gilmore, and I think this statement is a very interesting one to, to introduce a discussion of sweet and sour mash. He says, the whiskeys of Kentucky are no two of them made exactly alike. And in many cases, the methods differ very much, uh, very widely indeed. Uh, in consequence, there is a great individuality of flavor and a great opportunity for connoisseurs to exhibit their powers of discernment. Hey. Okay. That sounds fancy. Well, so, it's, it sounds like, you know how like whiskey and wine drinkers always get made fun of for like being like, yes, I have, yes, I get caramel and shoe leather and tar. And, <laughs> I like this voice, Gene. This is yeah, a good voice. Yeah, it's my fancy voice. Uh, but it seems as though yeah, like we're, we're actually right. One of, our <laughs> own, one of our own, so to speak, That's a fellow right. whiskey fan, was speaking in <laughs> elevated terms in in pre-prohibition America, you know, with all the forces of prohibition kind of looming, you know, and they finally won for a while anyway, the, the debate. But the point being that um, there was sweet mash and there, and there was sour mash, but there were also subdivisions, you know, and there were, it, when he was writing, there were 400 operating distilleries in Kentucky alone. Uh, there were many, uh, there were, there were more than further distilleries in Tennessee, lots still in Pennsylvania. So with hundreds and hundreds of distilleries, often in isolated areas, they had evolved specific ways to work. So I don't think anybody can say there was only one sour mash or there was only one um, sweet mash, but we can identify the main characteristics of each. So originally, sweet mash meant using water to mash, mm -hmm. right? To, yeah. to macerate the heated water was added to the ground grains in the, in the mash tub. Not, not spent beer from the still. Right. That's what sweet mash, as far as I've been able to determine, originally meant. Sour mash meant using spent beer, heated spent beer from the still. Often it was still hot after the boil in the pot still, which they originally used pot stills, not column stills, right? So they would just transfer the heated spent beer in the base of the, uh, of the spirit still to, to the mash tub for the next mashing. So... Okay, so that's what it meant, but... But uh, just, uh, would yeah. sweet mash mean that it was a sweeter outcome, or, like, why would they it call would, it sweet? It, it, it meant that, that the solution of, of water and grains was, was less acidic. Gotcha. Not necessarily sweet, The pH, but the pH was higher. Gotcha. Okay. Not necessarily sugar sweet, although mm -hmm. once it got converted into cereal sugars, you know, from the diastase and the malt, it would... It would be sweeter, but it really, it really, what it meant was sour mash was, from its lactic acid, was uh, sour. And anybody that has dipped their finger into a mash tub, um, I, the last one time I did was at Maker's Maker's Mark, and it was noticeably tart, you know, mm -hmm. to the to the tongue. Maybe you guys have done the same thing. So, oh yeah, it, a question of, of relative, you know, uh, acidity. Um, however, in Everybody worked out the way, initially it was farm distilling and then small enterprises and then larger enterprises, larger distilleries. Everybody worked out their specific way to mash. So some people started with a sweet mash because if you're starting distilling at the beginning of a season, you don't have any back set unless there's somebody 
a friendly distiller down the road, but often there wasn't, right? So you would, you would use water to start, mm -hmm. and then once you were able to mash and ferment and then distill alcohol from that, you had yeast in the, in the fermenting tubs. Uh, once enough of it was, you did that two or three times, you had enough yeast to, um, you know, to use for the next uh, fermentation. So once they had enough yeast, they would, some distillers use that yeast, okay, from the, from tub to tub, so to speak. Um, and at that point, they, many of them used the back set. They had, they had a boil. They moved from sweet to sour, right? Mm -hmm. Because sweet being they mashed with water, sour meant once they had a boil and they had back set, they started to mash with the back set. Mm -hmm. And then they, they could keep going with back set because they, they were doing multiple distillations as the season progressed. They also had, as I said, yeast from the fermenting tubs. Mm -hmm. Some added the yeast to ferment the mash. Some did not. Some relied just on the, on the resident yeast in the air. So that, those are the two forms of sour mashing. It, mm -hmm. it meant originally back set in the, in the mash tub, not fresh water, although sometimes it was mixed with water. Right. But let's say some back set in the mm -hmm. mash tub, sometimes 100%, sometimes less, but always some back set. Secondly, one of, of two things, either relying on a completely natural fermentation, mm -hmm. which is how Lambic is made today, or not relying on that, which could be chancy, could take longer, less time, depending on the, the weather and the microorganisms around, and, and relying on the yeast from the, the previous fermenting tub and keeping the yeast going, as, as a lot of brewing, beverage beer brewing was done. That's the two ways of sour mashing in the 19th century that I've been able to find and I feel documented. I heard a story, actually. I read it in Proof, and you probably have heard it as well, a, um, a brewer who was making a lambic and, and believed that the yeast colony was lived in his roof, mm -hmm. um, in the, the wood in his roof, and he had to have the roof repaired, like it was just falling apart, and so he refused because that's where his yeast was coming from, so he just built a roof on top of it. <laughs> he just <laughs> built a roof like on top of because he didn't want to disturb the colony of yeast right. that he was depending on right. um, to, to ferment his beer. Which I think is a, that's a great little, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the different regions of, of the state of Kentucky, and probably Tennessee too, um, had different resident colonies of, of microorganisms, and they affected each beverage differently. And that's why the, they tasted so, so different, as Tom Gilmore said in that, in that quote. Now, that, what I'm speaking of there is small tub mashing. These tubs held, um, uh, they were larger than a regular barrel, and smaller than a Scots hogshead, okay. in between okay. the, the two, uh, 50 or 60 gallons uh, tubs. And uh, so you mashed in, in the same, for sour mashing, in the same tub that you fermented in. Right. Okay, originally. Yeah. yeah. Right? And then later there was a variation where they, they mashed in the small tubs, but they, but they poured the, all the small tubs into one big mash tub, you know, and did it that way. So that so sour mash, right? Back set for the mash, and then the two 
the two tributaries resulting from that of a purely natural fermentation, which continued right until prohibition in some distilleries, but also back yeasting, using the yeast from the previous ferment. Sweet mashing, using only water to, to mash, and generally adding yeast, adding yeast. So now some people did add from, they back yeasted. So that's kind of a, a hybrid. Some people, the, the terminology is inconsistent. Some people called that sweet mashing because you're still adding. You're not relying literally on the organisms from the air. Yeah. That's why the, I think the easiest way to look at the distinction is in terms of the, of the water versus backset as opposed to the, the yeast source. But anyway, it, so sweet mashing was water to mash, always, and to ferment, and adding yeast. And that yeast could be either from the previous fermenter or later in the 1800s, the, the uh, yeast makers and the distilleries would culture up their own yeast you know, from a special mash that was different from the mash used to make whiskey. And yeast making was, a, was an art. Uh, uh, Chuck Cowdery has written a lot about that, of, of whiskey makers in the old days. And they would um, use hops as well to, to help isolate a yeast. But that's before isolating single-cell yeast in laboratories. That came after Pasteur and Hansen at the, at the end of the 1800s. So, by the end of the 1800s, they were, by, well, 1900, 1905, they were able to, you, you didn't have to do that and let it sit under a fruit tree and culture it up and, you know, wait till you got the right characteristic yeast. Um, you didn't have to do that. You would rely on, on isolating really the best part of that in a lab and then, you know, keeping that in a jug. Okay, so that, but either form is still an external it's external to the fermenter yeast, mm -hmm. right? Okay. You're not scooping. Yeah. You're adding yeast that you've developed yourself yeah. in, a, in a couple of ways, as I've said. Uh, and that's sweet mashing, generally with water. And sour mashing was the other process. Uh, you said, um, and this is actually great because we were at the Maker's Mark Distillery and they said, mm -hmm. oh, uh, you know, they add hops to the yeast. They have a, a, right. a jug. Um, and we weren't really sure why. Um, mm. So it's for isolating particular. <laughs> we also drank that yeast. We like, did. Oh, we, we happily <laughs> drank this yeast. What did it taste like? Um, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I can't remember. It well, Kentucky was, trips are like that. Yeah, yeah. Ready. It was. I mean, it was right after we got this, this still off the spirit, so yeah. everything's a little. It was early in the morning and no it was pretty bready um yeah it was it wasn't a very was memorable yeasty. flavor i think it was just it was just like exactly what you think like i make bread at home and so like that is such a and and for me that like yeasty smell is uh so uh like anytime i go to a distillery it is the i, I love the smell of a, a um you know a rick house that's i mean it's intoxicating but for me that yeasty smell of the the mash is so oh it's just like incredibly powerful um so yeah and and reading again like i always because i feel like we're right into the science going back to you know proof which i'm still not the whole way through because i it's taking me like line by line to get through it great book um but like talking about breeding yeast and how, you know, it's literally like breeding out unwanted things and, and making sure that it, you know, does exactly what you want it to do in exactly the right way. It's kind of, an, it's kind of a really, 
nerdy, wonderful yeah. thing to, it, to look it, at. It, yeah. it really is. And on the point of hops, um, uh, what and I don't regard myself, uh, you know, necessarily as um, an expert on on uh, on yeast, uh, understanding the history of yeast making itself. But from what I've read, the the, the resins in hops, I guess the alpha acids and the other uh, components of hops, had some ability to to protect the yeast that was selected, that was felt to have the characteristics they wanted for fermentation, to keep it pure and away from the influence of, of bad yeasts and bacteria. It, it killed the, the ones they didn't want mm -hmm. and protected, yeah, that as best as I can glean, that's yeah. why, um, uh, you know, hops were used in different ways when they were culturing up a yeast. But the point being, those yeasts were fashioned to be added to a mash, as opposed to falling into it from the air or resident in the wood, mm -hmm. right, vessels. When you relied on a purely natural fermentation, as the lambic makers know, it's to some degree um, uh, uncertain and, and controllable only within certain kind of wide parameters. You may not get a highly alcoholic wort, you know, a wort, you may, you may get um, a weaker one. And when E.H. Uh, e. Taylor Jr., one of the leading figures in the American bourbon industry in the 1800s, when he spoke to Congress and in publications about his way to sour mash, he, he knew that, that relying on a wild fermentation would result in a low yield. It would produce a distiller's beer that had less alcohol than if you added a yeast of known characteristics so you could predict what the alcohol content would be. And I, if my calculations are correct, and I wrote about this in one of my posts, um, in one of Taylor's speeches, I believe I calculated correctly that his beer came out to about 4.5% ABV. Um, most distillers' beers today, my understanding is, are 8, eight 10. To 12. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. 8 to 12. Eight to 12 so I you think. can see yeah. he got a much lower yield. Uh, part of that too was they were mashing in small tubs initially by hand to 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 so the grains there were lumps in the grains you know not all the starch got converted to sugar that right. was part of it as well right. wasn't as efficient <laughs> it was very inefficient right. but he felt that the low alcohol yield was a good thing because it left a, a high amount of um, uh, he, he felt that if you it's funny, but today it seems odd to read it, but the yeast that we are so careful to isolate and you know its best mm. characteristics and keep it going in a, in a, in a lab, in a jug, and, and in a donut ultimately, and they regarded that as artificial yeast. They used to use terms like artificial, you know, and forcing a fermentation. So he felt that if you do that and get a, a much higher alcohol yield, you're producing less desirable byproducts of fermentation, uh, secondary constituents, you know, that he felt, fusel oils and uh, others, that he felt gave a less advantageous flavor than if you just let nature take its course. And yeah, and um, he also felt that the relatively high level of, of um, unfermented sugars that were left in his distiller's beer uh, somehow improved the, the flavor of the, um, of the distillate, even though they're, they don't, vaporize the sugars stay they're solids right yeah. so they don't but he, now this is like late 1800s uh, theory uh, before modern science really fully understood yeast and I can't say whether he was right or wrong but 
there was definitely a feeling in the industry at that time that this small tub, natural fermentation, or in some cases with back yeasting, you know, that was an mm -hmm. accepted way to use small tub mashing as well. You know, this was spoken of as the hallowed, old-fashioned, ancestral drink of, of, of Kentucky, mm -hmm. the original bourbon that had, you know, the only, apart from the, the lower yields and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the extra costs associated with that, the only other issue they identified with this is that they felt it needed longer to age, mm -hmm. longer to age. Okay. So they made a distinction between quicker maturing whiskeys and whiskeys that needed long aging. And uh, sour mash made the most traditional way, needed the longest aging. But long to them was eight years, seven years, right. versus four or five. Would they still distill up to like 160 proof or like what was their distillation? Well under, well, well, under. well under. But then all distillers did mark at that time. Yeah. You know, they would, they, would, they would distill out to maybe 105, you know, okay. 100. Very, very low distillation, much lower than today. I mean, from an economical point of view, you're taking longer to ferment. You've got less alcohol in your original fermentation. Your distilling is more troubled. Um, so now you're you're yielding less alcohol, um, and that's a big difference because you're getting more of the original flavor from the grain. Uh, you will get a more grain-forward uh, bourbon. Right. The the lower the proof of the distillate off the still, I think in general, the, that's right. The more the more grain characteristics are left in because, and those are the congeners really, right? Mm -hmm. the, the secondary, the fusel oils, aldehydes, acids, esters, um, more of them remain in the spirit at a lower, generally speaking is, is my feeling, at a lower proof, especially with pot stills. Mm -hmm. So the, right. right? So the small tub natural fermentation or back yeasting method originally relied on twin pot stills, just like in Scotland today, a wash and a spirit still. That's what they were using. And uh, those stills at young ages tend to produce very, wouldn't you agree in your mm -hmm. experience, very vigorous spirits. Mm -hmm. I mean, malt, nobody would drink a, generally a malt whiskey today at four or five years old. Right. Maybe some people do. But. Yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. sense. More flavor in the in the. Well, they're very they're very feisty drinks. They yeah. have mm -hmm. they they're great once they're aged long enough. Um, so with the replacement of the pot stills in Kentucky by more advanced stills, ultimately the tall column still we're all mm -hmm. familiar with here. Um, you know, you were able to get a cleaner spirit, and I think that was part of the idea of a faster maturing whiskey, right? Because the distilling out proof was higher. So I think if you distill out at 150 proof, 145 versus mm -hmm. 100, you know, it, it may well be that you have a cleaner spirit, and therefore it doesn't need as long to reach. Yeah, and as a, you know, we're not going to get into this on this podcast, but uh, the proof levels affect what flavors are extracted from the oak. Um, so sure. they're generally the rule is you don't want to, you can proof bourbons into the barrels at a higher proof and still grab, grab flavor. But with rise, you want to keep it, you know, under 118 or 112, depending how long you want to age it for, because uh, you, you want to extract certain flavors and the proof has a big effect on how much and what flavors you extract. Um, talk mm -hmm. about science. Like this is, get, you, know, you can get right into it. Well, yeah. and actually that's a question I want to ask. Um, has there, so in looking back in sort of historical documents and, and doing all the work that you have, was there anything that you stumbled upon that just blew your mind that totally changed 
um, uh, sort of perspective that you had already and just sort of flipped it on its side? We, yes, I, I would say so. And, and um, I, I would say that the discovery, the, 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 the locating of, of texts in the, from the 1800s, which I mentioned on, on mm -hmm. what they are, I've linked them on, on my blog, that indicated that a whiskey mash was made with no yeast added at all, not even from the previous scooping it from the mm -hmm. top yeast layer of the previous fermenting tub. That was a big surprise to me. I never had understood previously, and I haven't read in modern texts uh, that I've, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, that this was a traditional technique not just used in an isolated form here and there, but that were, was prized by the people who spoke about the finest whiskey traditions of Kentucky. No, I did, that's mm. what I didn't mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. I understand well what natural fermentation is because only a very few brewers today still do it, as we know, and notably in Belgium. But I didn't understand that this was part of uh, American whiskey history. Um, and in reading about Backset, when you read these early texts, which again, we have to factor in the level of science that these people knew in 1870, 1880, 1890. When you read them, they, use, they talk about Backset, or spent beer, providing the function of yeast. They say, well, you don't need to add yeast because you have Backset. Mm -hmm. So uh, Backset itself probably does not actually provide yeast when it when it's inserted into the mash not right away because it's been boiled it's been boiled right or at least heated to a very high uh and maybe not 212 fahrenheit but you know to a high level of heat and that would have killed the, the yeast but the very fact that they spoke about that because they weren't exactly sure what was accounting for the for the natural fermentation really surprised me that they would say something like that mm -hmm. like that we can we're yeasting with back set so we know now that it's not as simple as that. But the mm -hmm. fact that they said that, um, no, I never. So that would indicate I, they were using natural yeasts in the environment rather right, than. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I might have expected to find, Mark, that, that they were back yeasting. And, and of course, I, I did find that, right? I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility because of, of sourdough bread and, right. and leavens from, right? Mm -hmm. a, a batch of dough. To, but we all understand mm -hmm. that. So we can understand that. Even though in Kentucky, when we go down, we're told, oh, no, 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 you know, we don't scoop the yeast from the prior batch. But you can still, if you learn ultimately that that's what was done uh, by some, you can say, okay, yeah, I can see that. But not to use any form of yeast, you know. Um, and, you know, this technique, Bonfort's, uh, which I've mentioned a couple of times now, a wine and spirit bulletin, stated in the 1880s that Dr. James Crow, who is associated with great developments in bourbon in the 1840s and 50s, that he used this form of sour mashing, relying only on natural yeast, with Oscar Pepper at the Oscar Pepper Distillery where he worked. Bonford said that. Mm -hmm. And James Crow has always been associated with sour mashing, but I previously would have thought it was limited to adding backset to mashes and then adding yeast. Not relying on natural fermentation. According to Bonfort's, now it is a relatively short statement, it's a few lines long, but this was a trade magazine, quite a sophisticated one, addressed to the industry. I don't think they would have said something like that about figures that were regarded as very important in the history of 
you know, the, the whiskey industry without it being true. And um, members of the Pepper family were still living. And James Pepper, the third in the Pepper line, so there was Elijah, and then Oscar, and then James E. Pepper. When James E. Pepper established his own distillery uh, in the 1870s, I believe, he advertised, and I in included a, a sample of the ad in, in uh, one of my posts, he specifically advertised this method of small tub fermenting without adding yeast. He said, we don't do that. And as I said earlier, Edmund Haynes Taylor Jr., um, a great figure in bourbon history, argued for this method uh, throughout his active life. So that, that's what surprised me. It was the, the natural fermentation side of the history of sour mash. I did not expect to find that. And the reason I think that, that uh, it's not generally uh, appreciated today is that it goes so far back. You know, by 1905, when you read texts on distilling, they refer to it as dying out, old-fashioned, low yield, unpredictable in its, you know, in its results. Um, Sounds like all those things were true. It was low yield, unpredictable, um, but maybe, and also not friendly towards, well, now you're mass producing whiskey in larger forms. Exactly, and that. therefore not competitive, right? Yeah. You, you know, you, 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 I mean, there were other people selling good-tasting bourbon um, that it could sell for much less because you could make more alcohol in a much more efficient way. Yeah. And that's why it died out. In, my, in 1912, the U.S. Uh, Internal Revenue uh, Service issued a bulletin where it summarized the, the various forms of mashing I've just referred to. Um, and it, it says this form of of relying only on wild yeast to, ferment a, to um, ferment a mash is practiced by only a few very small distilleries today. You could, there were 400 at that time, so if there were 10 or 15. So that's 1912. Eight years later, national prohibition descends on America. Mm -hmm. No more alcohol. When the industry starts up again in the 30s, um, this... You know, there may have, there might have been people still using small tubs to to mash, mm -hmm. but I don't think anybody was using, uh, based on what I've read, mm -hmm. natural yeast to ferment. You could still, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and people to craft distillers today, you know, can mash on a small scale basis, but you know, to rely on the ambient air and the and the organisms in the frame of wooden vessels to ferment. I believe, based on everything I've read, that that completely left the industry uh, after 1920. So it's so long ago that this technique was used, it was on its way out even 100 years ago, that I don't think there's any clear understanding, to, at least, you know, and I've been involved in learning about these issues for years, um, I didn't understand it until I, I read these sources, and I, I find it fascinating. And I also think it would be very interesting today if a, if a distiller, craft or large distiller, would try to, to, uh, to, to make whiskey in this fashion. Mm -hmm. I, I think it would be really interesting if somebody tried this. Off the top of my head, if I'm not wrong, E.H. Taylor, the brand, did put out a sweet mash um, bourbon. Or years and years sour ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yes, I, I think, think you're right. I think you might have put a sweet mash, and yeah. I feel like I've tried it. Right. Are you going to confirm this for me, Bylaw? Uh, I, I, think, I think you're right. They did have a Taylor's sour 
They had the special sour mash. They had a special sour mash? Which was the more traditional mash. Um, they had a sour mash. That What they did was they let the barrel, they let the mash sit long enough to acidify on its own. That's what, that's how they acidified right. it, Mark. They didn't add um, backset. Um, uh, I'm sorry, they didn't. Um, yeah, they called it the old fashioned sour mash. Old that's fashioned right. sour mash, right. And that was. Uh, 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 one of release where it was the more traditional use of the mash. Right. So the that w- so there was a sweet mash, but I believe there was a sour mash. Sorry, there was the sour mash you just mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And either they or another distiller did a sweet mash too, which would have meant no backset in the mash, right? Because right. today in Kentucky, sour mashing means using backset in the mash and may- maybe in the fermenter sometimes as well. Um, that's what it means today. So if somebody makes a sweet mash whiskey today, they're using only water to mash. And I believe a bourbon was released, was it Woodford or, um, gosh, without checking on Oh, yeah, Woodford Reserve Master's Collection, they came out with a sweet mash. Okay, there you go. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in terms of when I've tried these products, I can never tell that, you know, they're made in one fashion or another. Right. I, I don't think I don't think the relative level of acidity really affects the flavor. I, I don't because I, I you know it, it uh, I've, I've heard that that cognac is is brand, cognac brandies are distilled from rather sourish wines right you know in fact they're better than sweet flabby wines right would, but nobody would call even young cognac, uh, sour tasting, right? right? So I don't think the acidity level alone affects the, the, the final flavor. However, backset may affect flavor. Right. Right? Yeah. Backset itself, just that whatever flavors are in there from the, pre, the, the previous boy. Mm-hmm. So that may be one reason, too, today why the Kentucky bourbon, because mm-hmm. they like the, the flavor addition, not just the the acidity part, because they could do the acidity part by adding a lactic acid culture. Whenever I hear like sour mash and like the creation of it, like I just wonder how many like wives back in the day were like telling their distiller husbands, like, listen, this is how we make sourdough bread. Like you should probably try <laughs> right. I mean, like in sourdough, like you sourdough starters were like part of dowries back in the day, yeah. like because they were right. so important. So right. like, you know, it sort of just all fits together in this sort of cultural, scientific and sort of like really fascinating way. So no, it's it's a gr- like great chat to have. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, and I, sure. I think the connection you just referred to actually did absolutely must have existed, and people were adapting techniques that, you know, from bread making and from other arts that they were concerned with. Um, but there were many variations to that. For region, sure. You know? And you could also go from sour mash to sweet, starting mm-hmm. up distilling. For you sure. Know, they're, they're, that I mean, you can see, uh, it's just a question of building blocks and how the. What suited each person and or their level of, I don't know, you know, technological knowledge and whatever they felt worked. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, uh, Gary, before um, before we uh, end the podcast, um, I think this would be on theme. Uh, Pour you a little bit of uh, whiskey made in the 60s. Is that uh, oh, yeah. something you're interested in? You have some? Uh, I do. He does. Oh, I would love to try. He does. Right. That's very yes. kind of you, Let's do it. Thank you. Let's do it. Wonderful. Yay. That's great. Get the dusties out, Mark. 
Oh, that's very exciting. Get the Dusties that's out. That's another part actually, of history, isn't it? I was going to say, that's a good question, actually. So for someone with such a, a keen interest in whiskey history, do you have, are you into Dusties? Are you collecting yes, Dusties? It's not so easy here in Ontario, but... Right. Yeah. Well, through my involvement in straight bourbon, when I used to go down to Kentucky, thank you, uh, very much, Mark. So what, what are... Um, what are you uh, are you pouring that? So what we have here Beautiful is color. the this is Canadian whiskey uh, from this is the one of the uh, Gorham's uh, whiskeys that they released in 1967. It was distilled in 1952, uh, and this is part of their centennial 100th anniversary. Uh, they called this the rare old whiskey, Canadian rare centennial. Rare old whiskey. Um, yeah, so this is um, a very interesting find. It's a 15 year old. I'll Thank show you. you the bottle there wow. that's impressive it's a very dark colored whiskey too i mean it is. it's also been aged for a while but it's uh definitely dark colored yeah for sure 15 years old 67 so this um the distillate in it would have dated back from um the early 50s yeah right? 1952 i believe wow. is the date it was distilled or at least thereabout oh um, for sure fitting up 52 is on the stamp which i i believe that at that time, the system meant that... Yeah, those little uh, ribbons you get over the top of the bottle, yeah. um, they used to be a way for, especially in Canadian whiskey, for ta tax collection or like this is an official whiskey, they'd stamp it with the official dates. Um, and it's not used anymore, but now you'll see like Taylor and, yes. and others use it. Because I think, I think if my history might be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure uh, bourbon... Uh, Canadian whiskey started that, but then bourbon was like, oh, this is really nice, looks very official, and then they right. started doing the same thing in the U.S. So those, uh, those little strips come from Canada. There. Yeah, the Bald yeah. and Bond Act, exactly. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cheers, guys. Cheers. cheers. Thanks, Thanks for, for inviting me today. For it's on. been wonderful to talk to you, cheers. and cheers for oh, this wonderful it. memento of, of the early 50s. It, it's absolutely delicious, um, very rich and soft. Mm -hmm. um, There's this that pancake, that, like, mm -hmm. that, that pancake thing that these Dusties... They wow. just have that beautiful yeah yeah it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty rare find and um they um, dusties are usually pretty good uh this one had very little evaporation i think it, it stayed pretty it did well it stood pretty, stood pretty yeah. well someone yeah. kept it out of the sun they did they just shoved it in a box put it in the back of their garage done <laughs> until and done. you found it <laughs> it's, <laughs> that's, that's in, yeah. it's in good condition because i have tasted ones um in my years of going down to straight bourbon meetings mm -hmm. Um, some people would, would come to the meetings, and, uh, as you've done today, and put a bottle on that they had in their family or, or that they bought off the retail shelf in America because it's surprising that there, there were quite a bit of bourbons of, uh, made within the last generation. Mm -hmm. Because there was a bourbon glut in America right about 15 or 20 years ago, there was still a lot of stock that wasn't sold. So you could buy... And I was able myself to buy uh, old Taylor and old Granddad, made before '87 uh, in the early years of, of uh, you know my travels with my wife in America. But now um, it's almost all been bought up. But so, but in the earlier years, people would 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 obtain them and bring them to Straight Bourbon, and and I was able to try some, um, I, as we're doing with yours today. And I I find that this one is in particularly good condition. Sometimes those oldies, yeah, they yeah. get a little moldy or. I've had a yeah. few of those as well. Um, you know, old Granddad from the 80s is in high demand right now. If you've got a bottle of Old Granddad in the 80s, it's, uh, you're doing well. You can well. share with me. <laughs> <laughs> I love idea. Old Granddad. Good idea. It had a very, it's I've true. had it a couple of times. It had a very fruity, rich flavor. Um, you know, and who knows if some of that, as the complexity in this, 
and this one wasn't from, you know, wooden fermentation vessels. They used a lot of wood in those years to, still to mash and to ferment, um, whereas today I think some wood is still used in the industry, I know, but, but it's mostly metal. So I think you tend to get more complex flavors with wooden vessels uh, in processing, you know. But this is wonderful. This is, uh, you know, you can really see how Canadian whiskey achieved its renown with, with a high-quality product like this. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's really nice. And it's, like it's holding up well. It's actually mm. tasting better now that it's had a little time. I was going to say, it's I not as sweet. It's, it's not it as sweet gets more dry. at all. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's very different from when you first opened it. Yeah, when we first cracked this open, it was like overpowering sweet. Um, yeah, it's definitely like, kind of It was of like subtle. everyone was like, whoa, maple, maple, like burnt sugar, like, okay. whoa. Yeah, and no, then, but I, now it's evened out a little I bit. I find really it very nice. balanced. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. See, what's interesting is how they were, and they still do, um, the Canadian distillers blend in some straight bourbon, mm -hmm. straight bourbon or rye, right? Mm -hmm. The straight element. Yeah with the uh, the more neutral element to get this kind of complexity and um and flavor characteristic well i'll leave you with one question before we wrap up and that is what is your go-to whiskey right now in your cabinet i know it okay. could change day to day but yeah we always want to know what's what's your go-to yeah, right no, now I, i'm gonna mention one yeah. and, and it's i just bought one yesterday it's uh canadian club the, the green label, mm -hmm. single grain rye mm -hmm. is or chairman select. Yes, yep. yeah, yeah. Which is my understanding of it is, and it tastes like my understanding. It's a straight whiskey. It's distilled at a low proof, and it's aged in all new charred wood in Alberta. Yeah, they fetch it. Windsor fetches it from Alberta. Probably originally they used it in uh, in blending some of the. I think maybe some of the Corby brands. I don't know, but um, I think that whiskey is just excellent, and mm -hmm. it's good value mm -hmm. as well. That would be value. my go-to today. Excellent. And that's yeah. now available in the U.S. Um, it's it now used, available yeah, in the U.S. Okay. I think they ago. changed the name they did, yeah. for the U.S. Uh -huh. Yeah. There you the go. chairman's, I think, yeah, they did. Uh, it's in that. It's more like in a, uh, like the Jim Beam bottle, like a okay. book, a, a Knob Creek bottle. It's okay. similar to that. Uh, but we'll put that in the whiskey. Uh, we'll put in the uh, we'll put that in the show notes uh, yeah, with a link. For I should that. Yes. I should have remembered the exact name, but it has a long name. It's it's uh, uh, Chairman Select Single Rye Grain. Yeah. Hundred percent rye, yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent rye. That's it. Yeah. And that's, that's it. I would yeah. say that's a go to now. Um, Excellent. there's always some in the when I when I do want a whiskey, you know, I um, often uh, will will select that one. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Great. I feel wonder... like I wanna I wanna re listen to this and reabsorb all the uh, okay. good information. I love okay. that sort of stuff. It's Absolutely. awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you Thank for having you. me. It was wonderful to be here. Excellent. Um, and Gary, you are on Twitter as well. So uh, what's your uh, Twitter ID? Uh, yeah, uh, well, Beer at Sec. Um, Beer at Sec, okay. Yeah, I use the uh, at Beer at Sec. Okay, and that's also your blog. Uh, do check out Gary. You also written for the National Post and a few other publications, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. On the legal uh, side. On the legal side, mostly, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, that's right. It was about, uh, yeah. That was but a legal article. A legal article. I still do a lot of legal related. writing, too. Yeah, there you go. Um, but you can see Gary, um, we'll have it on the show notes. Um, and as always, uh, you can check out Jamie at... That bourbon thing. And myself and Mark Bylock. Um, also Snapchat, mostly. Oh my gosh, Mark. just Mark, though. Just, just, I just can't get into Snapchat, Snapchat. I'm sorry. I'm literally, I'm two seconds away from just deleting it it's off funny. my phone. It's funny, because Jamie's on my Snapchat account so often. It's, uh, it's funny I that know. she's not... You can just find me on Mark, <laughs> at Mark Bylock on Snapchat. <laughs> I'm at Mark Bylock on Snapchat, That's basically. really good. Perfect. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening, guys. Very much appreciate it. Uh, please 
please remember to review the podcast. Yes. Uh, we haven't done shots recently, so uh, we feel like oh, there yeah. should be. Uh, uh, it's Listen really easy it. to do. Just uh, go to iTunes, uh, look at the podcast. Uh, you can just rate it. Uh, however yeah. you want rated however you want but and, mostly with good ratings thank you uh, if you listen on overcast recommend <laughs> it on the on overcast as well um uh, just to help to get the word out i appreciate it guys cheers cheers, cheers. cheers.